Welcome to YDHTY and happy Thanksgiving if you're in the United States. Uh, I'd originally planned to publish an episode with the Data Monk for Thanksgiving until last week when Elon Musk reinstated the Twitter accounts of a few controversial figures, most notably Donald Trump. And the earlier removal of Trump and a few other conservative figures had prompted cries of censorship from big tech on the right. And last August, I dove into the subject with a series dedicated to it. Now, the episode you're about to hear is one I recorded with Ben Studebaker, referencing a paper he'd written comparing the debate we're seeing around speech on tech platforms to what we saw during the Red Scare. And I personally wasn't all that upset when Trump was taken off Twitter, mainly because I'd listened to him run his mouth for four plus years and was ready for a break. But that out of the way, Ben has some great observations on how flaws in our system can lead to people embracing controversial ideas and how our tendency as a society is to try and suppress those ideas rather than looking at what led people to embrace them in the first place. I really enjoyed revisiting this episode, and I think it's really relevant based on what's going on today. I hope you enjoy it too, and I'll be back next week to resume the conversation around energy. Sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Guten Tag. It is your bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here. In fact, the only boy of nonpartisan political podcasting with the second in our four-part installment on tech censorship. Now, last week, we had Matthew Feeney from the Cato Institute who discussed how there's little evidence to support the idea tech companies are censoring conservative voices, and even if they were, the effect regulation would have on the industry would only make the largest platforms, that is, the ones doing the bulk of the alleged censoring, more powerful. Funny how that works. If you didn't listen to that one yet, I would strongly recommend you check it out. Now, this week, I asked Ben Studebaker, a political theorist of whom a longtime listeners of this show will be familiar, to discuss an article he penned called Liberalism's War on the Internet, which describes how the most professedly ardent supporters of democracy have taken a decidedly undemocratic view when it comes to free speech on the web. More importantly, He makes the case that the threat of regulation of the platforms we speak on is actually a way to silence political opponents without passing laws that infringe on free speech. As always, Ben makes some interesting historical parallels I know you're going to love. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. So jumping into the article you wrote, I found it an extremely thoughtful overview of really, I think, what we've gotten ourselves into with uh, our current information stream and with the fact it's really now very much dictated by by a handful of companies and you know before we we dig into it though can you just define liberalism because you do a good job of it in your article and i think 
what liberalism means on this side of the Atlantic is different from what liberalism means on your side of the Atlantic. Yeah, so I use basically a big picture Max Weber type definition of liberalism, which is that liberalism is grounded on the idea that instead of having a state which is committed to one particular moral theory, religion, or worldview, the state will be committed to the freedom or liberty to create and choose one's own values autonomously. These values can be constructed in lots of different ways through lots of different civil society organizations, but there's meant to be a plurality of these organizations with a menu of different values. So they can be churches, universities, unions, social clubs, lots of different mediating structures which sit between the state and the individual and give the individual options. Now, first off, it should be worth noting that that is a value that is shared in America on both sides of the aisle. So both sides profess to believe that uh, one of the things inherent in our system is the ability to disagree and the ability to hold views that even people would view as abhorrent. You know, the other thing you mentioned in your article is the fact that that also includes protecting ideas that may be contrary to this idea of a liberal order, correct? Right. This plurality, at least in theory, is meant to include potentially illiberal doctrines, right? But then if you're going to include illiberal doctrines, you have to somehow prevent those illiberal doctrines from becoming so powerful and so widespread that they displace liberalism outright. So you have a little bit of a paradox here. It's a bit of a catch-22. You're supposed to have a pluralism which includes things other than liberalism, but this pluralism has to be circumscribed enough that those things can never prevail politically. You know, then kind of taking all that and, and moving it towards the, the issue of how tech companies are now censoring information or how they're deciding objectionable versus unobjectionable information. You know, what we've seen in the last, you know, let's even call it five years, uh, is is a progressive ramping up of what's considered acceptable speech and what isn't. You know, a great example, Donald Trump being taken off of Twitter, Donald Trump being taken off of Facebook. How does that run contrary to liberalism or what, what, what problems does, does that create? Yeah, so when liberalism is confident in itself, it will go, well, if we just have a good, robust debate or deliberation, the liberal ideas are bound to win out because liberal ideas are great and powerful and cool, they're bound to win out in a fair discussion. When liberalism starts to get defensive and it starts to worry that it's weakening, that it's losing popularity and losing support, it starts to get defensive. And as it gets defensive, it begins to find ways of circumscribing the pluralism that it otherwise would protect. And of course, because it still has to be liberal, it has to circumscribe this pluralism in a way which isn't felt to be circumscribing. So the state has to find a way to constrain the discourse without being seen to constrain it. Yeah. And so, you know, in this example, we could say, well, we are uh, stamping out disinformation on COVID for the public health. Or, you know, what I found really interesting were the parallels you drew between, you know, the Red Scare and the War on Terror, which is, if you remember back during the War on Terror with the Patriot Act, that effectively said, yes, we are, you know, potentially walking the line on infringing on civil liberties, but it's for the public defense. Or in the case of the Red Scare, yes, we are 
technically stamping out a specific type of ideology, but it is for the public good. Yeah, the, the trick is how you do it, right? So with the Red Scare, you don't make being a communist or holding a communist view criminal. It, it was not illegal to be a communist or to sympathize with the Soviet Union, but it was career suicide to remain inside a communist organization. You would be blacklisted from other desirable organizations that you'd want to be a part of. So in a normal kind of civil society, right, being in one organization doesn't affect your access to the other civil society organizations. You can be in a church and also go to a university, right, or teach at a university. But once we start trying to circumscribe the discourse, instead of banning organizations, what we'll often do is we'll make it so that if you touch one of these bad organizations, then your ability to go anywhere else is heavily, heavily limited. And because of this, people who want to be able to survive and want to be able to have careers will avoid the organizations that have been walled off from the rest of civil society in this way. And so the state doesn't have to formally censor anybody. It can still enormously discourage by creating a culture in which anyone who has been a part of a communist organization is considered to be a bad person or an unreliable person that you wouldn't want to have anything to do with. It can make being in those organizations more or less impossible. A similar thing has gone on, especially in Europe, with respect to Islamic organizations, where Germany and France have tried very hard to shape the forms of Islam which are permissible, which with which people will freely associate with inside their territories. How have they done that? Because I don't think a lot of people on in the U.S. know this. Yeah. So in the case of France, France has a kind of, of secular regime which prevents religious organizations from taking their discourse into the public sphere. So for France, you have religious freedom insofar as religion doesn't come into the public space at all. And this mm -hmm. manifests in a lot of rules in France, like the rule against uh, headscarves or the rule against wearing Christian symbols in public. These are rules which are meant to prevent these religious views from being taken into the public sphere where they will then cause conflict, right? Mm -hmm. uh, very heavy cordon between the public sphere and the private sphere in France. In the case of Germany, the German state funds different religious organizations and supports them, but it it, it, this funding and support is contingent on these organizations having a version of them of their religions, which is compatible with following German law and and being a citizen of the German state. Mm. And, and I think, you know, Germany and France can, in some respects, get away with that, because what I've seen of Europe, at least, is their views on things like free speech, freedom of religion, so on. They're similar to the to the United States, but they're not like sacrosanct. So, you know, speech is one of those things, for example, where they can do some infringement and still not fall outside the scope of what's considered legal. I think, you know, in Ireland, just as an example, there's a law for inciting racial hatred. Well, how do you see that happening on the internet right now? Yeah. And of course, if you ask the French, or you ask the Germans if they have religious freedom, they'll say they'll, that they do. France will say, you can believe anything you want, just don't take it into the public space. And Germany will say, you can believe anything you want, just don't accept German funding for your religious views if your views are contrary to the existence of the German state, right? 
and don't bring those views into the public space, don't express them, right? So in, in uh, our situation in the States with the Internet, you know, I think the Internet began as a kind of rogue reincarnation of the public realm. So in a public realm, you don't have these different private organizations, you know, universities, churches, clubs. You have a kind of shared space where everybody talks together. And so because everybody's talking together, you don't have these siloed discussions. And this means people bump into each other a lot more, which is part of what's exciting about the Internet. But it also leads to a lot of conflict because people are going to be much more bothered by the other people they're talking to if it's not in a siloed off social club somewhere in a physical building away from other people, but in a public space where loads of people come in and out all the time, right? So as this has happened, there's been a, a kind of acceleration in our discourse as these different ideas more rapidly come into conflict with each other, bump each other, and, and aggravate the people who hold these different views, right? And as this has happened, a huge amount of criticism of liberalism, which previously was didn't really have a home in public life. There were you know, here and there obscure left-wing or right-wing magazines, but you didn't have television networks or major national newspapers airing illiberal views on a regular basis. On the Internet, those views can get some traction, and oftentimes liberalism has been struggling to win those arguments online for various reasons, Right. So as this has happened, you know, initially people went, well, the Internet is just a fringe space. It's just a place where weird young people are, and it doesn't really matter politically. You know, Ron Paul had a lot of support on the Internet, but not very many people voted for Ron Paul. He didn't win any, any states in the Republican primary to speak of that, that I can recall. And so people just didn't really worry about this online discourse for a long time. It became more worrying in 2016 when Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump used the Internet to work around the traditional media gatekeepers, right? And so once this happened, an enormous amount of attention came to the social networks. The people in traditional media became very concerned that they were losing their influence over public discourse to these rogue actors on social media. And they began insisting and Centrist politicians who are threatened by the kinds of candidates who gain traction on social media also began insisting that these social media companies do something to clean up the online discussion so that the online discussion cannot produce these illiberal outcomes. Right now, the tech companies are in an awkward position because if they don't do what they're being asked to do, they face a threat of regulation, of trust busting. Right. So the the. Left says, if you tech companies are spreaders of fake news, this is in some way connected to our view about whether you should be regulated or trust busted. And so there's a threat that if they don't regulate the discourse, they will face these regulatory sanctions, right? Uh, and of course, uh, over the last five years, the tech companies have found that the potential cost of refusing to do what they're being asked to do is a lot higher than the benefits of protecting free speech on the Internet. They receive so much negative attention from traditional media and so much regulatory scrutiny from politicians that it's much easier for them to just go along and begin kicking off people who say things that traditional media 
and centrist politicians don't like. Do you think the the inquiry and the curiosity over Russian hacking, do you think that was a bit of a Trojan horse to be able to beat the tech companies over the head? I mean, there's there's no doubt it happened. You know, as to how much it influenced people, that's another question. I, I can't answer that. But do you feel like that was almost their opportunity to go after the tech companies? Or do you feel like there was a legitimate, honest concern about the, the Russian involvement in, in U.S. elections? Well, the same thing happened with the Red Scare, right? All of these communists are meant to be purveyors of Soviet influence, are informants of the Soviet Union, useful idiots for the Soviet Union. So there's a connection to the foreign to a foreign government, which is part of the justification for the move to clean up the discourse. Now, I have no doubt that many people believe you know, in good faith that that is going on. And I have no doubt that there are people out there who are trying to help foreign governments by saying things on the internet that are to the benefit of foreign governments, uh, both within the United States and outside the United States. Of course, a confident liberalism would say, we don't have to worry about that because we have a good, healthy public discourse and good ideas are going to be able to win out in that discourse. This is a defensive liberalism, which presumes that our discourse is so rancid and so broken that people who come from foreign countries who may not even be native English speakers, who have only passing familiarity with our popular culture, are still going to be able to win out in our public deliberation and influence us to do whatever it is that they want us to do. And they're uh, definitely operationalizing that and using that to clean up our discourse and to kick out illiberal views. So I think a lot of it is, is kind of your attitude. Do, do you really think that it's necessary for us to have a free society that we kick out people who think illiberal thoughts? If you think that, then there's a fundamental weakness to liberalism here uh, that needs to be reckoned with. And I think our leaders, instead of throwing people out, should be thinking about why is it that liberalism isn't able to win out in public discourse right now? Why is it that it's getting beat out? And what could liberalism do to reinvent itself, to strengthen itself in such a way that it wouldn't lose out in these discussions? But instead of doing that difficult work, our leaders instead want to just kick people out who say illiberal things. Yeah. And this kind of gets back to something you and I have hit on in our past couple conversations, which is people's feeling or people's sense of the justness of their government and of their system is equal to how well they're being taken care of. And the more they struggle, the more they're hurting, the more they suffer, the more they view inequity, the less they're going to feel that system works for them and the more they're going to look for alternatives. And so it's what you're saying. And instead of examining why are these people going to these extremes, they're thinking, let's get rid of the extremes. And then the problem doesn't exist effectively. Right. They think that the problem is just something that's been created by bad malicious actors who are just using uh, evil discourse sorcery to create divisions in the country which are otherwise based on nothing. And so all of that can just be resolved by getting rid of the evil discourse sorcerers and just burning them all at the stake and getting rid of them and intimidating everybody into not going uh, and following them. 
And I think, yeah, instead, there really should be a hard discussion about why is it that this kind of stuff is persuasive. And similarly, in the 30s and 40s, before the Red Scare, there was a lot of, of consideration of how do you prevent communism from spreading in the United States and in Western Europe. And you know, the Roosevelt administration had this idea that you should give people jobs and you should give people social security and unemployment benefit. And in Western Europe, you should create health care systems that give, and housing programs and so on uh, that give people these things. And I think in the 50s, our wealthy people did not want to give to us many of the social programs which had been given out in Western Europe, didn't want to pay for that, and figured it would be uh, more effective to just get rid of the voices that would otherwise call for those programs to come about in the United States. That's that's a really interesting take because as you were talking, as you were telling me about this, the thing I was thinking about is why was there a red scare? You know why why were people so up in arms against communism? Because in the fifties, it did seem as if that was an, that was an era where most Americans were being well taken care of. Well, yeah. I mean, there were a huge number of people in the 30s in response to the Depression who got involved in communist organizations, huge number of people in the American elite who got involved. Uh, and to some degree, there was a willingness to make certain concessions to prevent people from becoming communist because the Soviet Union was viewed as a powerful rising threat, as a compelling potential alternative. Uh, in the 40s and 50s, the Soviet economy was growing rapidly. The Soviet Union was making ground economically on the United States. There were very large communist movements in a lot of Western European countries that were competitive even in elections in, in say, France uh, or Italy, right? So because of this, there, there was a move to make concessions in the 30s and 40s to try to ease all of this. In the 50s, it was felt that enough concessions had been made and that at this point, if you just cleaned up the discourse and silenced the remaining radical voices, that the arrangement that had been worked out by that point would be sufficiently stable that you would not continue to have trouble from communists. Whereas in the 30s, if you tried to shut up the communists in a climate when people were doing much worse, it would be much harder to get away with that. Right. I think about when the bonus armies camp in, in 1932 was demolished uh, with tanks, the way that the uh, uh, you know, Hoover administration then proceeded to lose the 32 election. Uh, it was just a despondent situation for the elite in the early 30s. And so they were being very careful to make a lot of tactical concessions because they believed it very easily could get out of hand. Hoover's generals believed that the Bonus Army was potentially the beginning of a communist insurrection in the United States, that it had connections to communist cells in all of the major cities of the country. Douglas MacArthur was the commander who had those beliefs and made the call. What are the elites fearing now? What are they fighting against now? So I, I would say it's a kind of hybrid of Trump and or Bernie. And the principal thing that they're worried about is a politician who would undermine global capital mobility, who would potentially try to either take the United States out of the global economic system or try to redesign that system in a way which would uh, heavily revise our current trading relationships with other countries, heavily disrupt supply chains, produce stagflation, and so on in, a, in, a, in an attempt to repatriate jobs to the United States or to boost wages within the United States. The, the stagflation part sounds pretty bad. 
is there some merit to the argument that maybe the elites understand the negative economic repercussions of doing all these things and are just trying to protect the integrity of the nation? Well, I think that there are two perspectives on this that can be right at the same time. One is that there has been a lot of wage stagnation in this country. There is a lot of, of despair and unhappiness. And if there were some kind of transition to a society where there was more stable wage increases, I think a lot of people would feel better and would feel more economic security. The difficulty is how do you get there from here? And where we are now, we have a society where an immense amount of stuff is imported to the country. It's made by uh, very, very poorly paid workers in very poor countries. And the only way to get those jobs back would be to cut those trade links, cut those supply chains. And if you cut trade links and supply chains, then of course there will be an enormous increase in the cost of the things that you were importing, as it would take a while to reconfigure all of those supply chains so that they could make use of domestic workers. Right. And of course, the cost of those domestic workers, if you're going to have wage increases, would be higher. So in general, the costs of goods and services in the country would be higher. The standard of living would be uh, more stable, but also not as over the top. So people who are more affluent would not be able to buy as much as they currently buy. Uh, so you, you would I, I think that it is true that you could get more stability in the long run for a lot of people by doing this but at the cost of a period of great instability initially. And the reason a lot of politicians don't entertain doing anything like that is they don't think that if they did that, they could win the next election. Do you know why we can't have nice things in America? Or better put, why we can't have open and civil debate in a democracy that requires it? It's because polarization is a feature, not a bug, in the American political system. We decide elections based on the person who can win the most votes, not the one who can win the majority, meaning I'm better off appealing to a small group of hardened partisans by demonizing the other side and dividing than I am at finding consensus. And it's the reason we only have two parties in this country. It's the reason the majority of Americans choose not to affiliate with either of them. And it's the reason... You listen to YDHTY, and we need to change this if we're going to continue to be a functioning democracy, and there are two ways you can help. First, if you like what you hear, and I think you do since you made it to this break, share this with one friend, just one friend. This show grows by word of mouth, and we need more people like you in the conversation. Second... If you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. Rank choice voting is by far the easiest and most practical way to bring America to a consensus-driven system of elections, and Rank the Vote is dedicated to getting rank choice voting implemented in each and every state in the union. I hope you'll join me in the fight. Now, back to the episode. One thing I want to get into before we go to the go to kind of what what now is, and this is a question I've been asking myself a lot and and asking a lot during the series is, does tech, does speech on social media does that count as free speech? Because the 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 difference is, yes, you have people expressing their views; they can say whatever they want, so on and so forth. 
the two arguments that come up are, you know, number one, you know, your speech on Facebook, your speech on Twitter is akin to your speech in an Applebee's, you know, and if Applebee's doesn't like your speech, they can throw you out. Yeah. So it really depends on whether you see the internet as analogous to a utility or to a public space, right? Is it like the phone company uh, or a public square, a kind of basic communication space that is in theory something that everybody needs to have access to and which because of the way we happen to organize the internet to effectively be part of it you have to be able to use some set of uh, of borderline monopolistic tech companies you know either monopolistic or borderline monopolistic right uh, if you view it as utility which everybody needs to use and which depends on your having access to a relative handful of major tech companies' websites, then if you are not able to talk there, it is as if you are not being able to talk in the public square, as if you're not being allowed to make phone calls to people, as, as if your phone calls are being watched and people are judging what you're saying, right? If you instead view the internet as akin to a social club, uh, a university, a church, something like that, a private space, then the argument that people tend to make that it's a private space and therefore they should be able to kick you out would hold. What I would suggest is that the Internet is a lot more like the public square than it is like a private social club of the kind that you would go to in, say, the, the 19th century, where you would go off to some building with other people and you all pay dues to be part of it, and you all go and have a discussion which only people who are in the physical space of the building are able to hear. Uh, that is, a, I think, very different from the Internet. I think the Internet is very public. And I think that many of us feel that it would be wrong if citizens could not access the Internet. Many of us think that citizens should have a right to the Internet or that the Internet should be something that is a public good. Uh, if that's the case, then the fact that the Internet is currently organized through an oligopoly of four or five tech companies means that if those four or five tech companies kick you off, you are effectively being kicked off the internet and an important right is being violated. Can you, can you go a little further into the argument about access to the internet being a right? Yeah, so increasingly a lot of the important and influential discussions which influence political candidates, influence policymakers, are occurring online. And if they're not occurring online, then they are occurring in, I, in legacy media, so television, print media, and so on, right? Now, that legacy media is not something the ordinary person can very easily be part of or contribute to. You can watch television, you can read the newspaper, but it's not very easy to get on television or to be given a column in a newspaper, right? The internet democratizes the public realm substantially, right? Now, in the old days, you could rely on social clubs to play this role. So yeah, you might not be able to get on television or get a newspaper column, but you could join your church, you could go to a university, you could uh, join a union, and those organizations would play this mediating role and would get your interests and your opinion into public discussion, right? Now, increasingly, those organizations are in decline. There's a book by Robert Putnam called uh, Bowling Alone, about the decline of all of these mediating organizations. There are fewer of them, they have fewer members, they have less influence, and those that do have influence are mainly funded by very wealthy people and are not something that the ordinary person can join or have a whole lot of influence in. 
So the Internet is really the last place where the ordinary person can make themselves heard really at all in our social system. And if we're going to kick people off the Internet because we don't like what they say, I think in, in practice we really are giving them very few ways of being heard apart from voting. And in our country, so many of our districts are so gerrymandered and we have so many people that it's very hard for the vote itself to be a way of being heard for an individual. I mean, but do you equate getting, for example, kicked off Twitter versus getting kicked off the Internet? Because, you know, an example would be Donald Trump had a huge following on Twitter, was kicked off and then started a website. So he still technically has access. Yeah, of course, unless you type in the URL, you need some search engine to give a particular website enough placement on the search engine through its algorithm that you can actually find uh, that website. And one of the things that we've found over recent years is that the search engine companies like Google, uh, Microsoft, Bing, etc., they have changed their algorithms in part in response to this political pressure. They've made it harder for independent websites that are not owned by large companies to move up the algorithm and to be seen. And so if you type in some topic that Donald Trump has been talking about, unless you type in Donald Trump's name, you're unlikely to find that website unless it's otherwise going viral because people are spreading it on Twitter or Facebook, right? So if people are not sharing the website and the search engines are not pushing it up the algorithm, then it's very hard for anybody to find it unless they've already been told to go there specifically, right? And if you look at the list of those oligopolistic tech companies, of which there's four or five, what do they own? The search engines and the places on social media where stories can be disseminated. So if those four or five companies all decide they don't want you to be seen, it's going to be very hard for you to be seen unless you already have a following that already will follow you just based on the name of your website. And how would you have acquired that following? Well, at some point in the past, you were allowed on social media, and that's how you got that following. So there are some people who previously were on Google and on Facebook and on Twitter who will be able to do this and manage, but their further influence will be heavily curtailed, and it will be much harder for other future people to build up similar followings. I'll expand on this a little bit, because for those who aren't familiar with how search engine rankings work, how social media visibility works. They're all intertwined. And at this point in time, for you to show up high on Google, for example, there needs to be a lot of people sharing your content on social. And for a lot of people who will be sharing your content on social, there needs to be generally a large following because generally a small percentage of your audience is going to share it. And those networks, which were once, I think, a lot more organic in the sense you could earn your way up to visibility, uh, now are more pay to play. Now, the flip side of that as well is that if you aren't a well-funded media outlet that can get your information out there and get it shared, then the other way to get yourself visible is to promote some banana land conspiracy theory about how the Moderna vaccine is going to turn you into a walking cell phone tower. And that brings me to the, the second part of that question, which is getting back to whether it's free speech or not, given it's pay to play, 
given that it's generally the most incredulous or the most uh, unusual information that finds its way to the top, does that is that similar to the public square? Because when I view that, you know, I, I almost think that it's almost like if you had a public square and somebody comes in with this enormous PA system and just drowns out everybody's voices, because ultimately there are certain voices that are algorithmically juiced and they're not always, you know, it's, it, they're not always the most logical ones. Let's put it that way. Well, I, I wanted to, to briefly, there's one other thing you said that, that struck me that this point about people promoting conspiracy theories of course, another way that you can potentially get out there is to be on something like Substack or Patreon and to have a dedicated audience which funds you on a subscription basis, right? Now, those audiences can be much smaller. You can have a much smaller audience and be viable through those means. But you'll have to cater endlessly to that audience. And because that audience is small, its interests and concerns are likely to be niche. And so what it does is it kind of gradually drives the content producer crazy because they gradually cater more and more and more to this niche audience, right? If they try to produce something that is a reason, you know, generally reasonable, it won't be distinctive enough to win a heavily dedicated niche audience. The heavily dedicated niche audience wants to pay for something special, and the thing special will often be the thing that's a bit crazy or a bit nuts. Right. So I think that that's another thing. It turns the critics of liberalism more insane and less reasonable because their only way of securing enough funding to participate is to cater to niche audiences, which will indulge their worst attributes and aspects and are paying to hear the things that are most provocative and upsetting. Yeah. So in some ways, you know, getting back to how we started, which is this war on ideologies that we find erroneous or abhorrent, in a lot of ways, it's maybe as much a war on the algorithms as it is a war on the self-interests of the elites. And I guess, you know, one one question I have for you here is it is it seems to me that the problem that exists today is that there's a lot of opacity in how government pressure is applied. So, you know, Facebook, Twitter, fear regulation. So they will stamp out conspiracy theories on COVID. They will remove Donald Trump for promoting, promoting content around elector, election fraud. And it's funny, I had a video removed from YouTube and I was banned for a short period of time for having a video that discussed election fraud. So wasn't taking a, a, a view that uh, there was fraud in the election and I was just banned outright. And then eventually I appealed it and, and got back on. But the, the, the question I have there then is, do you feel like regulation would actually be the solution here? Because I feel like that would take the subjectivity out of, do we pressure Jack Dorsey and Zuckerberg or do we not? I think that would take the subjectivity out of it and would establish some good guardrails to keep folks from trying to uh, simply like stomp out thoughts they don't like. Yeah. So I think a lot of this ties to one of the central issues in politics today, which is the personal versus impersonal problem, where a lot of people feel that our decisions are being made through impersonal systems that don't see human beings and don't ha share all of 
human beings' values, right? So bureaucracies, markets, these are big impersonal systems. Uh, whereas, say, in ancient times, you would be able to get ahead because you were the student of a particular person or you were somebody was your patron and that person supported you and you had a network of, of particular people that you knew who had power and influence and they liked you and they decided to speak up for you or support you in different contexts. So if you go to, like, say, ancient Greece and, and direct democracy in Athens, the public debate would often be contorted by particularly influential individual speakers who would be so charismatic and so dynamic that they would be able to, to make lots of friends and win lots of allies and have whole circles of people around them who would defend everything that they do and support them no matter what they said, right? Demagogues and tyrants and these kinds of personal forms of control. I think today a lot of people are, while, while we talk a lot about demagogues and tyrants, I think the real concern that a lot of people feel is a kind of totalitarianism where they're subject to algorithms or impersonal market forces or impersonal bureaucracies that don't care about them, that work on the basis of opaque processes which no one is really in position to reform because to even try to reform them is to say things that they will not allow to be said or will not allow to be disseminated, right? Uh, so I think that that is the thing that is bothering people, the fact that it's become so impersonal. Now, that's not to say that uh, going to something that is personal is, is necessarily the solution to that problem. I think a lot of time in history, you can find these moments where there's a swinging between either tyranny or totalitarianism. And we respond to the totalitarianism of the impersonal system by promoting the, the Caesar figure, the tyrant figure, who will tear apart and rip up the totalitarian scheme. Uh, and conversely, there are moments in history where we don't like a tyrant, and so we want a good system of impersonal rules that prevents any particular person from becoming too powerful. We tend to swing a little bit too hard from one to the other. And what we really need are a set of rules that people can see, that people can understand, that people have some capacity to change, and which we have some discretion in how we interpret them, how we enforce them. That's what good regulations do. They give people a set of rules, but a set of rules which are accessible enough that they can be understood, that they can be changed if need be, and that people can interpret and enforce in, in context-sensitive ways. And that's, I think, what we're really missing. We have, on the one hand, these impersonal structures, and we almost have both problems at once because we have algorithms and markets which are very impersonal. And then we have particular Internet oligarchs like a Jeff Bezos or a Jack Dorsey, who have immense personal power, right? And so we are making personal appeals to these internet tyrants, while at the same time we are deeply frustrated by the impersonal systems that they've set up, right? Yes. And which they always blame for decisions which have a lot to do with their own values. Mark Zuckerberg will say, well, I've set up this independent board which reviews whether Donald Trump is allowed on Facebook. I'm not making the decision. It's the independent board, which makes the decisions based on impersonal criteria. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So there's a kind of double irresponsibility because the tyrant will blame the impersonal bureaucracy and the impersonal bureaucracy will accuse the tyrant. So, of course, if you start talking to civil servants and bureaucrats and uh, and uh, billionaires about what the problem is, they'll point to wannabe tyrants like a Donald Trump. That is 
extremely interesting and something I think about a lot because your first thing that everybody needs to understand with tech is the network effect is paramount. So ultimately what is going to happen in any tech market is there is going to be one company with a large enough network that they just eat every other company. And at this point in time, it number one makes them more valuable to use. So for example, Uber is very valuable to use because of that network effect. There are lots of people using it uh, for rides. There are lots of drivers, right? Airbnb, same thing. Lots of people using it to book vacations, lots of people renting their homes out, right? Facebook is useful because everybody's on there. You know, all your friends, your aunt's on there, your, your grandmother's on there, everybody's sharing pictures, right? That almost creates like this competitive moat. You know, these companies can't get in. And then the second part is if a company does try to get in, those companies have enough power to buy it. So like Facebook and Instagram, prime example, you know, they were able to snuff out a competitive rival just by taking them in and putting them under their umbrella. And so that gives them an immense amount of power. The, the second part of that, and this is kind of a twofold problem, is, you know, with AI, you're going to have machines doing more work. And that work, in part, is going to be determining what you see and what you don't see. Those machines are going to determine how they're going to get you to be a more active consumer. So how do we, and this is our, you know, it's already happening on social media. How do we get you to read more? How do we get you to react more? How do we get you to check it more? You know, these, these, you, you literally have a software program playing you like a fiddle and getting you to log in, getting you to look, getting you to comment, getting you mad, you know, those are all, that's, that's a feature. That's what it's supposed to do. And then the last point I'll make, and then I'm going to end my rant here is you have a handful of tech companies that are always going to be a step ahead of regulation. They are always going to be a step ahead of the government because they are going to continue to develop technologies that fall outside the scope of regulation. It will take the, I mean, the government's just catching up with social media, you know, social, I mean, Facebook has been around since what, like 2004 ish, right? Like almost 20 years. They're just catching on. And there's, I, I, I can't imagine that's going to get any better. Is this a result? Is this a problem that's resolvable by government? Like, can you, can you regulate this and, and how? Well, I think there, there are problems that there are ways in which we could use government to solve this. The trouble is that the entrenched elite we have in our government is using its ability to threaten tech companies with regulation to prevent the kinds of politicians from being elected who might otherwise reform the tech sector in a more positive way, right? So they're, they're threatening the tech companies with just trust busting, really, just breaking them up and, and dividing them, right? So that the tech companies will regulate public discourse so that they get reelected, so that we can't instead have people who would make more positive interventions into the tech space to protect speech on the internet. And this kind of gets back to the the first episode we recorded together, which if, for those of you who haven't listened, it was on uh, austerity in Great Britain. It gets back to kind of how we concluded the the last one, which is it almost seems like there is no stopgap aside from like complete and total chaos or like or there's no stopgap other than things get so bad that 
everybody decides that something needs to be done. And it just doesn't sound like we've hit that point yet. Yeah. If you can keep things just comfortable enough that people think they have too much to lose uh, and that the consequences and costs of trying to resist are too great, then you can create a situation where you can get away with for a very long time having a system that is badly broken, but just not quite badly broken enough. And I think that's we're in a kind of chronic crisis where there's a profound loss of confidence in our institutions, but this profound loss of confidence doesn't come along with this belief that there is a good alternative that we could easily get to without paying a very heavy price, either because we ourselves personally would endanger our lives, our careers by making the moves toward that, or that we think that the, the thing that we think might solve it would itself be too dangerous, too uh, expensive in all kinds of ways, whether it's stagflation, whether it's the risk of tyranny in, in empowering someone to change this. Just to think of, of what you would have to do to create a situation where someone has enough power to change it or where some group of people have enough power to change it, that itself is, is kind of terrifying. Yeah. And the thing, I think the thing that scares me the most, and there is a, a guest I had on uh, a couple weeks back who was a big time Trump supporter. Every time he's, he's been on the show twice, every time he's been on, he's been anonymous because he's afraid of the career implications of uh, having the philosophies he does. And I certainly, I, 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 I don't agree with him. And I do think some of the speech is, I, I do think, for example, every time you are out there promoting uh, the idea that you shouldn't be vaccinated, you're putting lives at risk. That's my belief. On the same token, it does trouble me that, I, and I, and that, that these people have a fear, and I view it as a legitimate fear of expressing their ideas for fear that it'll negatively impact their career. You know, negatively impact their ability to provide for themselves and you know their families, and that—that's uh, not a. I, I think it's very important that we recognize that. It's very important that we recognize this is where we are, and uh, and do we want to be here, or is there a better yeah, way? Yeah, yeah. The issue of vaccines is a great example. There's a trust problem there, and you have on on the one side, you know, two possibilities really. You know, on the one side, you could recognize that there's a trust problem, that there are reasons that there's a trust problem and then try to do things politically to fix the trust problem. And on the other side, you can just say, well, you're killing people, you're bad, uh, you're the reason that people are dying, you're the reason that there are restrictions. If people are like you, uh, they're bad people. Don't be like people who say these things or you'll get in trouble or you might not get promoted or you might not be able to keep your job. Uh, and And this is the trouble. Every time our system has a choice between trying to rebuild trust and fear and intimidation over the past few years, it's picked fear and intimidation. Yeah. And so is there any, is there any example past or present of a society doing this right that can give us some sort of framework? Well, I think that there are many times when states have managed to come up with new ways of legitimating themselves, of new narratives that people can legitimately get behind and believe in. Uh, I'm not suggesting that we should get behind or believe in those um, those ideas, uh, but it, it certainly has been done. You know, Rome went through the crisis of the third century when there was a, an outright collapse in the authority of emperors and nonetheless managed to go on for another 200 years after uh, rebuilding legitimacy through a different set of promises, different set of institutions and structures. 
Uh, we went through a legitimacy crisis in the 18th century, a crisis in, in the belief in absolutism, in the belief in divine right of kings, in the legitimation narratives of the Middle Ages, in the European class system with the nobility, with privileges distinct from the rest of the population. All of that went through an intense legitimation crisis, and the American Revolution and the French Revolution were periods of instability that eventually produced different kinds of legitimation narratives that were able to uh, give, have, give people a sense of confidence in the social order for a while. So it certainly has been done. The difficulty is every time in the past when it's been done, it's happened through a period of immense suffering and tragedy. So it's, it's happened through revolutions, revolutionary wars, uh, major conflict, uh, the series of Roman civil wars. It doesn't tend to happen in a nice way. And so the difficulty we're in now is we, we need to find some kind of way of rebuilding legitimacy, of rebuilding confidence, but we need to do it in a way which doesn't have all of the violence and awfulness that typically comes alongside that historically, because the weapons we have today and our capacity for destruction is too great for us to go through a period of internal conflict of the kind that we went through in the past. And it's one of the reasons why I think our institutions feel so confident that they can just use fear and intimidation, because the cost of social breakdown is depicted in post-apocalyptic movies and dystopian movies all the time is just so enormous in a, a world with such a huge population, with such carefully arranged supply chains, with uh, so many people who could very easily, if we got off the rails just a little bit for just a little while, come to immense grief. Mm. Well, yeah. And, you know, the other thing that I'd bring up is if you look at the, if you look at wars, if you look at the history of war going, you know, back from the dawn of time until now, what you notice is World War II was really the last big, like, interstate conflict. Uh, I think part of the reason for that, to your point, is number one, the technology had gotten so destructive that the consequences became much bigger. So if you look at every war that follows, it's typically wars within failed states. In international relations theory, they'd say uh, that World War II was the last great power war. There were wars with minor powers, but the last great power war. Yeah. Oh, good point. Good point. And and I, but I think the second part about that isn't just the technology, but it's also the fact that this is the one time in history where everybody's had something to lose. Like even China and, um, and the United States, which philosophically are very opposed, um, have not come to blows because both have so much to lose economically by it. And, and that's kind of like when I, one of my fears about the anti-globalist movement is that we we all of a sudden create or we create a framework where it, now it makes sense. Now it makes sense for these parties to go to war because they don't have any shared economic interests, and 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 that's that's a big issue I see. Yeah, one of the tragedies of the history of human beings is that we have never been good enough at building political institutions and social orders to make violence and warfare obsolete. The Historical answer to broken institutions and defective orders has been violence. And the historical solution to violence has been 
institutions and orders which tend to degrade and deteriorate over time. We have not yet come up with uh, something which can permanently solve that problem. Uh, as much as we thought that we did in the 90s, in the 90s, I think that was the last time this system really believed in its ability to end history and to bring an end to conflict. Um, Francis Fukuyama wrote that book, The End of History and the Last Man. I think that was the last time that anybody really believed that liberal democracy was enough to bring an end to all of that. Yeah, yeah, well, heavy stuff. So it sounds like getting back to the core of this month and the core of the issue, I guess the answer is it doesn't matter what we do with tech, you know, at this point. It's kind of like, let's let's just let everything unwind and they'll figure out a way to have fun afterwards. Well, yeah, I, I always think it's worth trying to build the kind of society that you want, because as large as the obstacles are, uh, if we aren't able to come up with a way of reforming this, to have some kind of functional pluralism, the alternative to that is eventually, sooner or later, some kind of in incredibly grave conflict. So as long as we may think the odds are, I think we have to keep trying, because if we don't try, then the only alternative to our continuing to try sensibly is people in the future trying insensibly. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please share with one friend. And if you haven't subscribed yet, this is your invitation to hop on board. Just click subscribe or follow, whatever the button says, and you will get a piping hot episode of YDHTY delivered to your device every Thursday. Now, you can also find a link to Ben's article and a write-up of today's episode on YDHTY.com. Visit the webpage, click the link in the upper right-hand corner that says Episodes, and ye shall find. Now, a couple of interesting points. First off, social media platforms have taken a lot of the blame for the coarsening of political discourse in America, but all they've really done is amplified the voices that have been there all along, and put a lot of people who really disagree together. And when you mix them together, they don't always like what they hear. Now, secondly, attacking extremist voices by silencing them may keep others from hearing their message, but it won't alter the conditions that make people prone to extremism in the first place. And this is something we saw during the Arab Spring over a decade ago, where social media accelerated the pace of change and gave people a new way to organize but it didn't create the economic and political distress that gave rise to the movement in the first place. And the rise of populism here is no different. It's a clear sign that people don't feel the system works for them. And this is why I am committed to the idea of electoral reform, because until our democracy becomes more responsive to the will of the people, we can expect people to feel unheard, and we can expect a government that governs from the polls rather than the center. As always, music, courtesy of QuellerTac. YDHTY's editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Oh, bye-bye.